Let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord, we need you. I need you. We need this God of grace. Help us to sense how woefully inadequate we are. How delightful Christ is. I pray that you would help us to be people of the word who meditate on scripture, who meditate on the truth that you have given to us, and that because of that, our delights in you continue to grow and grow. It is a scary reality to pause for a moment and just realize that every day there are people dying and going to hell. Help us to be bold in preaching the truth. That you would help us to be a church that is characterized by our love for Christ and is expressed in our evangelism, that we would go out and that we would boldly share Christ with our neighbors and our friends, and our co-workers, for your glory. Strengthen us now as we prepare to hear your word preached, that you would give us insight, that you would give us wisdom, and that we would deal faithfully with the text of Scripture in a way that would exalt you. In Christ's name, amen. In 1952... British psychologist Hans Eisnick published a paper entitled The Effects of Psychotherapy and Evaluation. It actually is one of the classic um, papers in uh, psychology. And uh, in this paper, he wrote the following uh, indictment. He said, in general... Certain conclusions are possible from these data, the patients that he had studied in his, um, for writing this paper. He says, they fail to prove that psychotherapy, Freudian or otherwise, facilitates the recovery of neurotic patients. They show that roughly two-thirds of a group of neurotic patients will recover or improve to a marked extent within about two years of the onset of their illness, whether they are treated by means of psychotherapy or not. So his study, which uh, was an evaluation of over 7,000 cases of psychoanalytic and eclectic therapies, came to this conclusion that whether someone is treated by psychotherapy or not, within a period of two years, two-thirds of them got better. Uh, This is a... Uh, is and and has been in the history of uh, psychology a remarkable observation that at a very minimum casts a little bit of doubt onto what's going on here. This would certainly be if we were to take this same report and say that this is what we found in the medical field. This would certainly be a damning report if two-thirds of a medical doctor's patients improve within two years whether or not they did a treatment or a surgery. Uh, that would be cause for major concern. 
Now, of course, this is back in 1952. Uh, what is the, the modern take on this? Well, in 2014, a man by the name of Ray Herbert uh, reflected on this study by Hans Eisnick, and he wrote an article uh, for uh, the Association for Psychological Science. Uh, Hans Eisen, or, um, I'm sorry, Ray Herbert, by the way, uh, is a behavioral science editor at the Science News. He's the editor-in-chief of Psychology Today. Uh, he's the health and science editor at the U.S. News and World Report, and he's also a columnist for Newsweek, Scientific American Mind, and the Huffington Post. So this guy is uh, out there. Uh, he um, writes for a lot of these outlets. And in writing for the Association for Psychological Science... He wrote an article, Ray Herbert wrote this article, entitled this, Why Psychotherapy Appears to Work Even When It Doesn't. And Ray Herbert said this about Hans Eisnick's 1952 study. He says, Eisnick noted somewhat wryly that these findings are encouraging for the neurotic patient. Okay, If you're suffering from something, it's encouraging that two-thirds are going to get better. He says, but not so welcome from the point of view for the psychotherapist. He also predicted that therapists would react emotionally to his proof based on their strong feelings and beliefs in their effectiveness. He was right about the emotional reaction. Many therapists still insist that their informal clinical observations and intuitions are proof enough of therapy's power. Eisnick did not attempt to explain why therapists' belief Beliefs are so resistant to proof. It was beyond the scope of his analysis. But now a, a group of psychological scientists are attempting to do just that. Emory University's Scott Lillenfeld, working with colleagues at five other universities, argues that therapists are subject to the same cognitive biases that skew all human thinking. Rigorous scientific thinking does not occur naturally, so such biases cause therapists to infer and believe in outcomes that really have no proof. Now, if there's nothing else that you uh, remember or observe from this particular quotation, it is this. Therapists themselves are subject to the same cognitive biases that all humans are subject to. In other words, all of us are imperfect. Nobody has reached the pinnacle to say, I am completely free from all of this. We all make decisions, and this should be something that we acknowledge uh, and understand because of Scripture, but all of us are subject to biases. We are subject to believing things even without proof because of our fallen human nature. Uh, in this particular article, he goes on to give some examples, and I could send you the link to the article if you want, but he gives some examples of how therapists exaggerate the efficacy of their treatments. Um, and what's more fascinating is that this is actually an article, and in fact, everything that I've read so far today is information from people on the inside. This is not someone on the outside trying to discredit anything. These are statements from those on the inside who are simply being honest and, and essentially saying, we don't have all the answers. And, and I think that should be something that they're commended for, for at least acknowledging that. Speaking of people on the inside, I want to read to you one more um, uh, excerpt here in our introduction from somebody on the inside. This, this comes this time from a uh, textbook 
Uh, it's a textbook entitled Biological Psychology by Kelly Lambert. Uh, this, again, someone on the inside not trying to discredit secular psychology. I read a couple of sections this last week from, uh, from this book, and I want to read to you some uh, interesting excerpts here. She says this, How effective are these drugs at treating the symptoms of depression? Despite nearly a 400% increase in antidepressant use from uh, 88 to 94, to, uh, 2005 to 2008 in the U.S., no reductions in the rates of depression have been observed. In fact, depression rates have been observed to rise within this time frame. And this is in the section where she's talking about the different medications and their side effects and those kinds of things. And then she says the traditional form of cognitive therapy, um, focusing on the role of inaccurate beliefs and faulty information processing. This is cognitive therapies are addressing your thinking. You're thinking this way and you need to think this way. She says, uh, this has been the subject of more research than the forms of incorporating more extensive behavioral strategies. When cognitive therapy is compared with antidepressant medications, the efficacy rates, or how effective they are, has been found to be similar, but with fewer side effects. Although in some cases, medications have been deemed more effective for severely depressed patients. So what she's saying is that... Um, antidepressant medication and cognitive therapies have pretty close to the same results, except the cognitive therapies have less bad side effects compared to the medication. Then she continues and says this, beyond the alleviation of acute depressive symptoms, however, cognitive therapy has been shown to have longer lasting effects than antidepressant drug therapy. So not only are there less side effects of cognitive therapies, those, the results of cognitive therapies are longer lasting in the person's life. After treatment ended, more than twice the number of subjects uh, taking antidepressants relapsed compared with the cognitive therapy subjects. Continuing with the medication therapy was more effective than the placebo group, but was not more effective than the discontinued cognitive therapy group. Because of the enduring effects of cognitive therapy, as well as the lack of side effects, this approach is extremely valuable for treating symptoms of depression. Okay. So I hope that wasn't too confusing there, but basically this is what she is saying. She is saying that cognitive therapies, where you are addressing the way that a person is thinking about a situation in life has similar success rate to antidepressant medication. However, the advantage of cognitive therapies is that she is saying that there are less negative side effects and the results are longer lasting. And so here's what we're observing. The, the medical model of depression would seem to be losing popularity, and the cognitive and also the behavioral therapies are becoming more popular. Now, I'm going to say that this is good and bad from a Christian perspective. This is uh, good because through God's common grace, people are beginning to realize the importance of simply knowing truth. Is this true? Is this not true? and helping people to, to get through those situations and understand that maybe they were thinking about something in a wrong way. 
And they're helping them to think, instead of thinking about it this way, we should think about it this way. This is a good thing. In fact, this is, again, I would attribute this to God's common grace, that even unbelievers can come to some general truths about God's creation. Um, so this, this is the, the good part. Yet, while cognitive therapies are closer to the truth, the bad part is that they still lack the distinctively Christian element that is required for people to have ultimate and final hope and peace. We would say this, Christ is enough. And so this is where it gets a little bit closer and yet a little bit further from the mark. And because secular psychology is a constantly changing field, at a minimum, we have to come to the conclusion that some of these things that we're hearing may be uncertain. Some of these things are more theoretical, maybe, than we initially realize. The solution oftentimes is a moving target. And so with that acknowledged, we do want to move towards a solution. We want to move towards a lasting solution. We want to move towards a solution for depression, a solution for, as we've called it, sorrow without hope, that does give us something lasting, that gives us something that we can grab onto securely. And so that's where we're going to go, Lord willing, today. I want to remind you of where we have been in our study uh, on depression. And I will say this as well. Uh, If you have not uh, heard the rest of this series, this is a series, which means that a lot of what I'm saying today is building upon what we've talked about previously. And if you've not had the opportunity to listen to those, I would encourage you to go back on Sermon Audio and and listen to that. those, those previous uh, messages. Here's the series that we've been following, or the outline. A brief word on psychology, a biblical definition of depression, which we said was sorrow without hope, the many occasions of depression, uh, and there were lots of these that we talked about, um, the, uh, the cause of depression, uh, we said was misplaced hope, how to identify depression, or we said symptoms of depression, the psychosomatic nature of depression, uh, and, of course, that's the, the, the body and the mind kind of impacting one another. Unbiblical responses to depression, which was what we saw last week. And then this week is the cure depression. And then next week is how to counsel those who are depressed. I originally had these last two switched because I always kind of put the cure at the end of a series. And then I realized uh, it would probably be better to tell you how to counsel someone if you already had the cure in mind. So next week is going to be uh, how to counsel those who are depressed. Um, And so that'll be a little bit more of of the practical, um, getting into uh, the counseling room uh, and those sorts of things. Uh, So let's dive right in here to uh, the the cure of of depression. Psalm 42.5 is the verse that we have looked at over and over and over again. This has basically been kind of our series verse, our theme verse. Psalm 42 and verse 5, you can also write down Psalm 42 and verse 11. Uh, because both of these verses say the exact same thing. Psalm 42 and verse 5 says this, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Or why are you depressed? Why are you having sorrow without hope? And why are you within turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him my salvation. Based on this verse and based on other passages in our previous uh, messages, we've come to these Uh, three observations. We are defining depression as sorrow without hope. You remember this? This is 
saying sorrow in itself is not bad. There are times when we should sorrow over things. But specifically, we're defining depression as sorrow without hope. I'm having sorrow, but I'm also having hopelessness going along with that. Then we said that the cause of depression is misplaced hope. If you don't have hope, it's because you've placed it, you've put it in the wrong place. I'm hoping in my bank account, I'm hoping in the government pulling through on me, I'm hoping on my health, I'm, I'm hoping in this or that or whatever. And so I, I don't have hope in the right location. And so that kind of just makes this problem worse. And we talked about the cycle that this gets into where it just spirals out of control. And then uh, the third observation was that the symptom of uh, depression is hopelessness. And so you can see that right away, all of this is centered around the idea of hope. And we said that in our definition itself was a seed of the solution. Because if, if, if uh, depression is sorrow without hope, then the solution has something to do with hope. And so we're simply going to add the fourth observation, which is the cure, and that is hope in God. We could end the message right now. We've accomplished what we've set out to accomplish. Uh, and yet, this statement needs to be unpacked significantly in many ways. Uh, in fact, we could spend a whole series just on this. In fact, in a way, every sermon that we hear should be including an element of this. Here's what's going on in the world. Here's what's going on in the human heart. Here's what's going on in our own souls. And oh, by the way, hope in God. And here's me just turning the diamond a little bit so you can see that hope a little bit more clearly. And so really all of preaching, this, this is going to take years to preach through what hope in God means uh, bit by bit by bit. But we're going to try to hit some of the, the high points today. We're going to look at three things about hope in God. We're going to say hope in God is characterized by, and then there's a couple things here. Then we're going to say what the nature of hope in God is. And then we're going to say hope in God is cultivated through various things. The first observation here is that hope in God is characterized by the nearness of God. One of the things that um, Christians find the most joy and delight in is in having their God near them. There, there is something about the nearness of God that can comfort a soul unlike any other person is able to do. If I'm in the counseling room with someone who is going through depression, there is a limit to what I can do. There is a limit to what you can do. There is a limit to what you can do to the closest person in your life, your spouse. You cannot ultimately satisfy them at the bottom of it all. The great hope of the Messiah was that he would be near his people. Jesus, you know, is called Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. We see this theme of God's nearness to his people who are in need of hope in many passages, but I'm going to highlight two of them. Psalm 34, verses 7 through 18. Remember, this is talking about God near his people when they are depressed and hopeless. Listen to this. When the righteous cry for help, 
the Lord hears and delivers them out of all of their troubles. Not some of their troubles. Out of all of their troubles. The Lord is what? Near. The Lord is near to who? The brokenhearted and saves who? The crushed in spirit. I mean, the, the, the Lord is near not just to the, the people who quote unquote have it all together, since none of us do. The Lord is near the people who are crushed in spirit. What might we call this? The compassion of our God. If you are struggling through depression or sorrow without hope, God is near you. And that alone ought to comfort our our souls. Isaiah 41 and verse 10. Fear not, for I am what? I'm with you, the nearness of God. Be not dismayed. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with with my righteous right hand. The nearness and closeness of our God. The second one we'll observe here is this. Hope in God is characterized by a rejection of human wisdom. Hope in God is by definition, by definition, a repudiation of human wisdom. Because if you're hoping in God, you're not hoping in man, right? And so if I hope in God, then I stop hoping in man. And probably one of the foremost verses here is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. And many of us have probably memorized these two verses. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Hope in God says, I can't even trust myself to come to the right conclusions about my condition. And so I'm going to trust in God's wisdom instead of in my wisdom. This is why we ought to run to Christ first. Christ is not plan B. Christ is not, let me try everything else and then see if Christ is number one that we run to, that we cling to him. Those are the two um, observations here on what hope in God is characterized by. And then we're going to say what the nature of hope in God is. And the first one is that it is a secure hope. It's stable and it's firm. Uh, Hebrews 6, 19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. And of course, this goes on to talk about this is, this is Christ uh, that, that we're talking about here. Christ is a sure and steadfast anchor. Christ is not moving. It's not as if Christ is holding me up today and then tomorrow he fails in that. What is the song that we sing? He will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold. And so he's a faithful savior. For this reason, I just want to maybe clarify one thing, and I want to just make a distinction between sometimes how we think of the word hope being defined and how it's defined biblically, and that is sometimes when we use the word hope, we mean it in the sense of a wish. I I hope that this happens. I, I hope that I get this, or I hope that this happens. I hope that I don't get sick. That is a wish, 
but there's really no assurance that that will come to pass. It could, and it might not. When we talk about biblical hope, we're talking about something that we would define this way as a confident expectation. So when I say I have a hope in God, I'm not saying I really wish, I really hope God pulls through for me. It's I have a confident hope that he will do this. This is my hope. I know that this will come to pass. And so there's a little bit of a difference there in how we're talking about the hope that Scripture offers and the hope that we sometimes think of um, when we think, oh, I hope I don't get sick or, or something like, like that. This is, uh, and that's why we're saying this first one is that it is a secure hope. It, it doesn't waver. It's not, I might get it, it might not. Hope in God is a secure hope. That's, that's number one on the nature of hope in God. Number two is that uh, the nature of hope in God is, is that it is a joy-producing hope. And uh, for this, we'll look at Proverbs 10, 28. The hope of the righteous brings joy. If you have hope in God, the byproduct of that is that it brings joy. Hoping in God, and so I have joy. Number three is the nature of hope in God is that it is an uh, efficacious hope, or we would say an effective hope. Um, why, why is hope in God effective? Because it's not sourced in me. Let's look at Romans 5 for this one. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we can have peace with God. There, through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace, which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So here's our word hope. And what about hope? And hope does not put us to shame. That's the key phrase here. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The hope in Christ is effective because it does not put us to shame. Nobody who ever puts their hope in Christ will walk away with their head hanging in shame and saying, boy, that, what a flop that was. You, you, you have hope in God and you realize that it is effective, that it actually works, that I actually find myself experiencing joy because of this. And it's an effective or an efficacious hope. That's number three. Number four is that this hope in God is, or the nature of this hope in God is that it is an eternal hope. Um, and we can go to a lot of passages for this one. But basically, is your salvation eternal? Is it? Then what does that mean about your hope? It's also eternal as well. And actually, I, I didn't, number four is going to be our last one here for the nature of hope in God. However, we could really say that every one of God's attributes can be aligned with part of our, our, our um. Uh, the nature of this hope in God. Because whatever God is, it is expressed in our hope. And so God is eternal. Our hope is eternal. Uh, God is good. Our hope is good. 
God is just, our, our hope is just, all those kinds of things. But we're talking about eternal here. And the verse we're going to go to for this one is Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are gone. God's eternal. And so if God were to, to be temporary, if God's lifespan was like 10,000 years, then that would mean our hope would have an expiration date. But because God has no expiration date, therefore our hope has no expiration date, and it's eternal. The next one here is how we cultivate this hope in God. Number one, we cultivate it through prayer. Psalm 34, again, we already saw this verse earlier, but I'm bringing it back up again because it has the theme of prayer mixed in with God being near those who are depressed. And that is when the righteous cry for help. What's that called? Prayer. When you cry to help, when you pray to God, what does it say? The Lord hears. The Lord hears. And he delivers us. He's near to the broken heart. He saves the crushing spirit. And so certainly this is part of the, the toolbox of the Christian is that we cultivate this hope in God through prayer. Number two, and because of our study at the 9 a.m. service, this probably goes without saying, but meditation. Uh, Puritan William Spurstow says this. Um, he says that meditation is a remedy to fight depression. And he says, meditate seriously and frequently on the promises. And then he writes this. He says, I have sometimes thought that a believer's looking on a promise, a promise in Scripture that God has given to us, is not unlike a man's beholding of the heavens, the sky, in a still and serene evening, and who, when he first casts up his eyes, sees by chance a star or two. Okay? So picture what he's saying. He's saying meditation is like this. You go out into this field, and you look up into the sky, and you just by chance happen to see a couple of stars. He says, by and by, he looks up again, and both their number and luster are increased. So he looks up a few minutes later, and he sees more stars, and they look brighter to him. A while after, he views the heavens again, and then the whole firmament from every, every quarter with a numberless multitude of stars. He says, you ever do that? You go out, and you see a couple of stars, and then you go out again, and it's a little brighter, a few more, and then all of a sudden, you go out again when it's really dark, and the whole sky is just a canvas of stars. So he applies it by this. So when a Christian first turns his thoughts toward God's promises, the appearances of light and comfort do oftentimes seem to be as weak and imperfect rays. So he's saying when you first look at God's promises, it's like looking at that star and it's, you, see, you, you see a couple, you see it's a little bit shining through. And then he says, but when the heart and the affections are fully fixed in the meditation of a promise, oh, what legions of beauties do then appear from every part of it, which both ravish and fill the soul of the believer with delight. He's, he's saying it's the same thing. You look at Scripture, and, and sometimes when we gloss over Scripture, you see a little star here and a little star there. And then he says, as you begin to meditate, and as you begin to spend time, as you begin to spend minutes and hours, 
and you're looking at this promise and you're mulling this promise over and you're in your he said it becomes like this canvas of stars in the evening it ravishes the soul of the believer meditation is the process whereby the promises of god revealed in his word are digested into our lives we've seen that and if there is no thinking on the promises then there is no digestion we, we cannot minimize the significance of meditation to fight our own depression. We, we cannot gloss over that. It is not enough to skim over these passages. It, it is not enough to only listen to a sermon. You must meditate on it. And you must think about it, and you must mull it over, and you must continue to digest this. This is what we've been studying for the last several weeks, is meditation. If there is no thinking on the promises, then there is no digestion. And if there is no digestion, then there is no cure. We cannot give only intellectual assent to hope in God. We have to digest it. And I am fearful that far too many of us only know what hope in God is because textbook knowledge of it. We have not stopped to say, what does this mean? Number three, cultivating this is Bible reading. Of course, we understand this. If, if we're going to talk about meditation, we have to ask, what's the content of our meditation? And that's the word of God, Psalm 119, 81. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope, here's our word, hope in what? Your word. Where does that come from? Scripture. I hope in your word. Uh, Number four is uh, turning against yourself. This is an interesting one. How do you cultivate hope in God by turning against yourself? Well, this sentiment is expressed in our theme verse, which is Psalm 42 and verse 5 that says this. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. What is Psalm 42.5? It's a rebuke. There is a difference, there, there is a distinct difference between listening to yourself and preaching to yourself, Right? So we can passively allow thoughts to come into our minds and we can just passively entertain those thoughts or we can say, no, stop. You're not going to think about that. You're going to think about this. And part of the reason that I think that we struggle today, not just with this issue, but many issues, is because we are a people, we are a generation with undisciplined minds. In fact, I think I would venture to say that we are the generation that has the most undisciplined mind that has ever existed on planet Earth. As a whole, as a whole, we are so distracted in our minds. We, we, cannot, we, we cannot meditate long on anything. We, we cannot read a book through and sustain a thought and trace a thought from beginning to end of that book anymore. We can't do that because our brains have been rewired to think only in terms of 30-second increments 
on our smartphones. This is how we think. We have undisciplined mind. We cannot sustain thoughts for very long. And go read Romans. (laughs) Go read Romans. That, That is a hard book to read. Because why? He is sustaining arguments through the course of this, these, this book. And, and we're like, if I can't get it in a verse of the day kind of thing, I forget it. And so we have to have disciplined minds. We turn against ourselves by saying, don't think in those short segments. Think in terms of longer segments. Think in terms of how long can I, I meditate on this particular passage. Th- think in those kinds of terms instead of these short bursts. So we have to turn against ourselves, or we might actually call this preach to yourself instead of listening to yourself. Number five is hope in God is cultivated through pursuing Christ. Uh, and I'm going to give you two verses or two passages. The first one is Matthew eleven twenty-eight, where Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Is, is your heart just in turmoil? Are you someone who needs rest? Then what does Jesus say? Just come to me. Just I'll give you rest. Just come to me. That's passage number one. Passage number two, Hebrews four fifteen through 16 says this, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you realize the hope that this is? When we come to Christ and we're saying, I'm just struggling, he he does not rebuke us. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. He's near to us. He says, let me help you. He does not uh, uh, quench the burning wick, right? He, 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 you just have this little, <laughs> I'm hanging on by a thread. And Christ is full of mercy and kindness. And this actually should, and we're going to get into this next week, this should color the way that we help others going through this as well. If Christ is sympathetic to us, if he is compassionate to us, If he is long-suffering to us, then we likewise, when we are helping someone in this particular situation, need to be compassionate and need to be long-suffering and need to sympathize with them. And as we know, we need to weep with those who weep. And that is perfectly appropriate for the Christian, to sit down with someone else, to hear their depression, and simply to just weep with them. And then to give them the hope that's in Scripture. These are just five ways to cultivate. We could go on and talk about the importance of Christian fellowship, the importance of listening to uh, God-honoring music, to, uh, to lay up our treasures in heaven and not on earth, to understand what it really means to live by faith, to cast all our anxieties on him, to have a right knowledge of the Lord, and so on and so forth. And we could really expand this into uh, uh, dozens of messages on how to hope in God. But I do want to say uh, one more thing here. In addition to these ways of cultivating hope in God, I want to remind us that hope in God is a battle. Anyone who has gone through the trenches 
of depression can probably tell you of the hardship, the duration, the length of time, the difficulty. And they can tell you that it's probably not just like taking a pill and going on with your life. It's hard. I want to encourage those struggling by telling you something about hope in the Lord that I think, I hope, will be an encouragement. The Puritan pastor, Christopher Love, said, The people of God, that is those who are in Christ, those are believers, have always ground of comfort in their souls, though they have not always a sense of comfort. As a man hath a right to an inheritance, though he cannot read the evidences of it. Let me explain what he's saying here. He's saying, if you are in Christ, if you're a believer, you have ground in hope. You you possess hope. But he's saying that's different from having a sense of hope. Do you understand the distinction that we're making here? He's saying, you might have a right to an inheritance even though you don't see the evidence of it around you, but it's still yours. You still possess it. And what he's saying is, even uh, he's saying if you're in Christ, even if you're struggling through this and, and you don't have a sense of it, you're, you're kind of in this turmoil, he's saying you still have it. Not having a sense of hope is not a requirement for having hope. Because hope is not grounded in a sense of hope. Hope is grounded in what? God. Not in my subjective sense of that. In other words, there is a difference between feeling secure and being secure. All right, so let me give you an illustration of this. Imagine that a person is stranded on a desert island and they see a boat coming to rescue them. Now, let's imagine that this person on the desert island, maybe he's been stranded there for some time, and he has fallen into depression, into despair, and he just says, there is no hope that I'll ever be rescued. I'm going to die on this island, and it's all hopeless. And all of a sudden, he sees that boat coming, and something has changed because he realizes that he has hope. And instantly, I mean, there's no delay here. He instantly is recovered. He's not depressed. He's not in despair. He's not in sorrow because he has hope. Now let's tweak the illustration just a little bit. And let's say that this person sees this boat coming to rescue him and he says to himself, that's just a mirage. There's no way that this boat is really coming to rescue me. Does that alter the reality that he is being rescued? No. He is being rescued whether he thinks it's a mirage or not. We might say that his disposition is inconsistent with his position. He doesn't have any sense of hope. He's still hopeless. He's still despairing. He he still feels all of these things. And yet, he still is being rescued. 
Why? Because his being rescued is not dependent on his sense of being rescued. Here's what we mean by this. Because of the many complexities of life, because of the variation in all of our temperaments, because of the pull of our sin natures, sometimes as believers in Christ, we have a disposition that is inconsistent with our inheritance in Christ. It's just the nature of it. Sometimes we don't feel like we have hope. We have Christ, but then we waver and we doubt and and we sin and and we're uncertain and uh, things are cloudy sometimes. But I want to make an assurance for us and give us an anchor today. And that is for every person who is a Christian, for every person who has trusted in Christ for their salvation, your hope is no less certain because of your depression and your sorrow. It is not in jeopardy because of that. Your inheritance is not at risk. Let me say it another way. What is, we we, we say hope in God. When we say hope in God, what is the object of our hope? What's the object? It's God, right? Is the object of our hope, our hoping? No. Do we sometimes feel like that? Yes. Don't hope in your hoping in God. Hope in God. Don't hope in your ability to hope in God. Because if you're hoping in your ability to do this, then your hope is in yourself. Don't hope in your sense of your hope. Hope in what? In God. Don't hope even in your ability to overcome your depression. Hope in what? In God. Because it's secure there. The only worthy object of our hope is God himself. If you are one who's struggling and depressed and you don't feel hopeful, remember that your hope is not in feeling hopeful. It is in God. And while we waver, God never does. That's why we anchor our hope to him. Hope in God. That's the cure. That's the cure to sorrow without hope. And I realize and I understand and I am not dismissing the fact that sometimes this is a very long road for us to work through this. I get it. We scratch and we claw and we grasp and we we vacillate and we change and we're up and we're down. But that does not put our inheritance in jeopardy because hope is not in us. It is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ. When we uh, went on vacation a few weeks ago, we uh, went over to uh, Ocracoke Island. 
anyone ever been to Ocracoke Island? Okay, we've got a couple people. No, someone said no. <laughs> we went over to Ocracoke Island, and uh, the only way to get to this island is on a ferry. And uh, the ferry that we got on is you drive your car onto it. And so we drove our vehicle onto this ferry, and they fit about 30 cars onto this ferry. And they, I mean, they, they literally pack you like sardines. They're getting every car they possibly can get on this thing. And you can actually get out on the ferry and go up on the deck and walk around while you're, while you're going over to the island. But they pack you so tight that you're trying to get out of the car door, and it's like you're squeezing out, and you can just barely get out of your vehicle to get in there. And so you don't have a lot of clearance when you're going into the, the ferry. And so I'm driving into the ferry, and, of course, I'm driving in thinking, like, okay, I'm, like, an inch away from this over here, and I'm an inch away from this over here, and I'm, like, looking in all of my mirrors, and I'm, you know, going really slow. And there's a guy in front of me, uh, one of the workers here, and he's, he's giving me directions. He's saying, you know, go this way, go this way, come straight or whatever. And he sees me <laughs> doing this. And he just, he just says, just look at me. Just watch me. <laughs> because I'm, I'm probably holding up the line and all this kind of stuff. But he has a vantage point that I don't have. Right? I mean, I'm in the car, and he's outside of the car in front, and he can see exactly how much clearance I have over here. He can see exactly you know, how much clearance I have uh, on this side. And, and so I finally just said, okay, I, I, and it was hard, <laughs> but I just trusted him. <laughs> so I stopped looking at all of my mirrors, and I only looked at him, and I just watched and slowly you know, navigate in there. This is exactly what we mean when we say look to Christ and have hope in Christ. I mean, we're, we're, we're going through life and we're thinking, but, but I'm going to hit this over here and, and, I, I mean, I'm going to fall off over here. And if I do this and this is going to happen here and that's going to happen there and I'm not sure and, and I don't know if I have enough clearance on this side. And it's, Jesus is just, just come to me. Just trust my word. It is not your default position to obey God's word because we all think that we know better. But Christ is just saying, stop that, stop that, stop that, stop that, look at me. This means that we have to take steps and directions that we would otherwise not do because Jesus simply tells us to do it in his word. I understand that unbelievers get depressed and they get better. So someone might say, Christianity does not have the, the, the corner on curing depression. I understand that. I understand that sentiment, except to remember that people can think that they have hope when they don't have hope, which is to say that people might think everything's okay, and yet there is an eternity in a place called hell. If you're going to hell, you don't have hope. You might think you have hope. You might get better, 
But that's not real hope. We're trying to offer something that's more than just... When we say we want to cure depression, the Christian is interested in doing more than curing only the symptoms. We can cling to anything and find some kind of hope... But it's not lasting and genuine and eternal hope. We want something more than what the world wants. We can get better, quote unquote, apart from Christ. And I'm please note, I'm putting that in air quotes, okay? But it's a getting better for the worse, not a getting better for the better, which is what Christ offers. Taking a pain pill could cure joint pain if we're interested only in eliminating symptoms, but there might be a bigger issue at stake. Alcohol, for instance, cures depression. And what, what, what drunk doesn't realize this? We want something more substantive than this. The goal is to get at the heart of false hope and replace it with genuine hope. That's what we want. We want to find false hope, and we want to replace it with genuine hope. Someone who hopes in Allah might not be depressed because they really do think Allah is going to save them, but it doesn't change the fact that they really don't have hope. As Christians, we want to fix the symptom and the root cause. I'm going to read to you one passage as we close here, and that is Lamentations chapter 3, 16 through 24. We are going to have one more message on this. It is going to be the topic of helping those who are depressed. But I just want to read Lamentations 3 as uh, an example of hoping in God. And this is in the context of, of depression in Scripture. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and has made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. That's depression. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say... My endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind and have hope. You see the, the, the switch here? My soul is bereft of peace, but I recall this and then I have hope. What is it? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. What is the object of our hope? It is the Lord. The Lord is my portion. Hope in God, he's enough. And I will say, as we conclude for today and go to our uh, next part next week, that uh, I spend time every week in the counseling room. And I'm happy to encourage and help anyone that I can uh, and I know that many of us here uh, would also extend that same offer um, to be an encouragement to you wherever we can. If you are an unbeliever, you don't have this hope. 
And so the admonition, when I say hope in God, for a believer is to recultivate that hope. As an unbeliever, it is repent and trust in Christ. Don't walk away from here as an unbeliever. Thank you, God, for your grace to us. We thank you for the gospel. Help us now to find our hope in you. Help us to find that you are sufficient and enough for us. We pray in Christ's name.